We're in part two of our new series, What's Coming, The Meaning of Life, as we look at resurrection. Now, I grew up in the church, grew up in a little church in southern Maine. I was a church kid. When I, in, in the little church where I grew up, by the time I was a teenager, I didn't sit with my family. I sat like right down here where the Ridleys are sitting. I sat like right there. I was right front because I was the, you know, the, the eager A student. Well, okay, I was never an A student, sorry. That's, but, but I was eager, eager, right up front. And so I've grown up in this stuff, went to Bible college, all that. And yet, as we go into this series, this is the first time that I have ever done myself or heard an in-depth, lengthy teaching on resurrection. I've heard resurrection talked about. Resurrection is central to who we are as Christians, and we talk about it every Easter. We celebrate, you know, and we have a ton of hymns. Christ the Lord is risen today, you know, because the resurrection is important. But what does it mean for us now? Is the resurrection just about what happens in the graveyard? Is it just about something that, hey, okay, you know, I'm going to live and then I'm going to die, and hey, when I die, don't worry, I'm not done yet. And so last week we looked at Jesus' resurrection, and we looked at the fact that if you're going to make up a story, if you're going to create a story because you wanted to start a new religion and get a bunch of people to follow it, the story we see in the Gospels of Jesus resurrecting is not the story you'd make up. You would not make up that story because it has serious problems if you wanted to especially get a, a bunch of Jews to follow it. For one, the first eyewitnesses were women. And in that first century culture, you didn't believe women. Women were not reliable in their, in their estimation. So they couldn't testify in court. So if you wanted to try to get a bunch of Jews, Jewish men especially, to follow, you wouldn't start with, hey, our first eyewitnesses were women. So you wouldn't do that. You wouldn't do an early resurrection because they believed the resurrection wouldn't happen until the end of time. So you wouldn't start with a resurrection. You would have some elder explanation. And then you definitely wouldn't have God be a human. You would not be God, have God in human flesh because the Greeks and Romans had a ton of that. The Jews rejected that entirely. And so we looked at the fact that the story of the resurrection only makes sense if it was true. Because if you were going to make up a story, it is not the story you'd make up. It's a hard-to-believe story, not an easy-to-believe story. And the, the later, as the apostles traveled, and that we have the, the accounts of it in the Bible where they say, we are not following a carefully constructed tale. Because if you're going to carefully construct a tale, it is not the account of the resurrection. So that's what we talked about. And so now, but what does it mean? Because so often we might come into church and we sit there and go, that was a great sermon. I really learned a lot. And then we go home and the sermon was nice. You know, you're good if you ever play Bible trivia. You've got another question you can answer to. But what does it mean during the week? What does it mean on a Tuesday or a Wednesday as you're at work or at your home or you're in retirement, you're with family or with friends or talking to your neighbor? So what? What are the practical implications of the resurrection here and now? And that's what 1 Corinthians 15 talks about. And so we're going to spend this week and the next two weeks in 1 Corinthians 15. And you'll notice Bernadette started in verse 12. We already skipped the first 11 verses because it talks about Jesus' resurrection, which is what we covered last week. And we've got two more weeks in 1 Corinthians 15 because there's so much here. But let's look at a little bit of what we've read this whole section, starting in verse 12, he starts with the basic idea. This whole section is built on a simple premise. Either the resurrection is real or it's not. The whole, this whole passage is either it's real or it's not, which is, of course, those are your two possibilities. Either Jesus did rise and there is a resurrection or not. And so he starts with, well, what if it wasn't real? 
And so our first section here is, what if it wasn't real? And he says things like, well, verse 13. He says, if there's no resurrection, then Jesus is still dead. Makes sense. He said, and if Jesus is raised, then what we preach and what you believe is empty. It's in vain. It's worthless. So what we're teaching you and what you're trusting in, that's dumb. There's no point to it. And he says, and we're liars. Because obviously we're telling you that he was raised. If he wasn't, well, then we're lying. And everything we believe is worthless. Then it gets even a little more dire. Verse 17 And therefore, if your faith is worthless, well, then you're still in your sins. You're still in trouble. There's no salvation. And what's interesting is if you go out and ask pretty much any person, regardless of whether they have any kind of faith, and you say, do you always do what you should do? Pretty much every human being will say, well, no. I should be better. Even the ones that say, well, I do pretty good. But you say, do you always do good? They'll say, well, not always. Everybody knows they ought to do better. Well, if there's no resurrection and the fact that you know you should do better, well, you're kind of toast because there's nothing to bail you out. There's nothing to help you with the fact that you know that you're not as good as you ought to be. He says, and you're stuck. You're still in your sins if there's no resurrection. Verse 18, he says, and the people who have dead are dead. There's no, oh, well, we can hope for it. Nope, they're gone. That is dead. And in verse 19, he says, and those of us who are holding on to that, you should pity us. You should pity us because there's nothing there. He says, if, if this wasn't true, then this whole thing is just a, kind of a mess. And that's kind of dark, but that's what he says. He walks us through that. But then, praise the Lord, in verse 20, he says, but, verse 20, but now Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruit to those who sleep he goes but fortunately for us that's not true that he didn't rise he did raise he rose from the dead and so then he says and and since that's true what does that mean he says well first he's the first of the new future first fruit the first of the crop the Jews understood first fruit. It was the, when the first harvest came in. You've got a long time of harvest coming. This is the first, the beginning of what's coming. And so he uses that metaphor to say Jesus is the first fruit. He's the beginning of the new future. And in verse 23, he says, each in his own order, Christ the first fruits. After that, those who are Christ at his coming. In other words, we'll follow later. So Jesus' resurrection, which we talked about last week, He went first, we'll come later. We're going to follow behind, and we will also experience this. And then verse 24, he says, and then comes the end. When he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And so all the conflict, all the bad things, all the things that happen, he goes, he's going to defeat all that. He's going to fix everything in the future. And then verse 26, and then the final enemy, the final thing he's going to do away with, says is death. Death will be defeated at last. We'll come back to that idea in a minute. Because that's big. And sometimes I think we breeze over that a little too quickly. What does it mean for death to be done away with? For death to be defeated. So hold on to that thought. We'll come back. 
Because in the meantime, so now he said, so this is what it's like if he didn't rise. But now, because he did, here's what we can look forward to. And then he says, and so what does that mean now? And so in verse 30 and 31, he comes back to looking at the tension between did it, did it happen or not. Why are we in danger every hour? Why, I mean, Paul was under persecution, especially from the Jewish establishment because he was, he'd gone rogue. He was a Pharisee that, as far as they were concerned, was teaching error. He says, I die, verse 31, he says, I die every day. Things are rough. Verse 32 to 34, he says, how come all this hard stuff is happening? Is it worth it? Verse 32, if by human motives I fought with the wild beasts, he doesn't mean like animals. He means that he was really treated badly. He was persecuted in Ephesus. He says, what profit was that? How did that help me if the resurrection isn't true? If the dead are not raised? In fact, he says, if, if that's the case, well, then the, the rule I should be living by is eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Some of us know that phrase, right? Eat, drink, and we know it as eat, drink, and be merry. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. He just says eat and drink. He says, why would I go through all the hard things I went through if this is all made up? The better thing is just to go party. And then... And then as I'm studying this, my mind got a little blown. Again, now again, I'm, I'm 51 years old. I've been doing this for a while. And the verse that I bumped into, I knew by heart, even though I had never intentionally memorized it. And I'm betting there's a bunch of you who know it by heart too, even though you may never have intentionally memorized it. And you may have used it. I've used it. I've quoted it repeatedly. Verse 33, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Or some of you might read good character. Amen. Hallelujah. We know that one, right? A lot of you went, yeah, I know that one. Bad company corrupts good character. This is the one you use on your kids. I shouldn't hang out with those people because, you know, bad company corrupts good character. You hang out with the bad people, start doing bad things. Now, that's true. But what blew me away is that I wasn't expecting that verse here. Because I've quoted that verse, but this, he, we are smack dab in a whole chapter dedicated to resurrection. Why would he, you know, you wonder, did Paul, like, was Paul writing this and he had takeout? And as he's finishing his takeout while he's writing this, he got to the fortune cookie? And he opened the fortune cookie and went, oh, that's good, put that in. Bad company corrupts good character. Ooh, yeah, we'll put that in. And so is it a little non sequitur, just a little truism there? Well, no. I had never considered that in context. I didn't even know what the context was. I could, I could just quote it. Somewhere in the Bible it says, bad company corrupts good character. I'm like, wait, why is, what does that have to do with resurrection? Right? I bet you've wondered that too. Because I've never heard, I've heard other Christians quote it, and never in the context of resurrection. But that's the context. Right here. Verse 34, become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning. As some have no knowledge of God, I speak this to your shame. Part of me said, well, maybe he's changing the subject. Paul can wander. I mean, a little bit back there, he did a little discursive on the Trinity, so maybe that's what he's doing. But no, in verse 35, which is next week, he's still talking about the resurrection, so he hasn't changed the subject. 
So I'm like, all right, so I got to figure this out. So why does he say bad company corrupts good character or good morals in the middle of a teaching on the resurrection? So I looked it up. Oh, sorry, I'm behind on my notes. So bad company corrupts good. I've heard character, morals. So I looked up the word to find out what it is before they translated it. And here's the translations. Habits, manners, or this is my favorite, customary state. It can actually mean location, but it's metaphorical. Where you live, or the state you live in. I don't mean Maine or New Hampshire. Not that kind of state. But like some people might say, well, I'm kind of a, my normal state is I'm kind of melancholy. Or I'm generally a cheerful person. What is your normal state? What is the normal condition? Your morals, your character, where you normally exist. That's the word. And he says, bad company corrupts a good place to live. What is he talking about with resurrection? Well, the question of this whole passage was, either it's real or it's not. And if it's real, if that's the state in which you live, in which resurrection is real, then don't live with a bunch of people who live like it's not real. Because they will corrupt your way of life. And we'll talk about that more in a second as we get into application. And that's why he says in verse 34, he says, therefore, stop sinning. Because what's sinning? Sinning is operating outside of God's will and plan. And why would you do that? Because some have, verse 34, no knowledge of God. They don't understand God's plan. They don't understand God's reality, which is the resurrection. And so bad company corrupts good character. It's not about just don't hang out with people who do bad things. It has to do with who, who, are you hanging out with people whose lives are based on a state of now is all there is? So let's talk about that. Let's apply it. Some have no knowledge of God. So let's apply it and unpack that some more. So we have two ways of understanding now. We have two ways of understanding our current existence. I mean, we all got up and today we either showed up here or we logged into the stream. So that's what you decided to do with your morning. What you decided to do with your afternoon, I don't know. And then tomorrow, you may have a choice or you may not have a choice, you know? You might have to, I got to go to work. Or I can stay home. Or I can, I'm, I've got plans. How do we understand our life right now? That's why I called this, this message the meaning of life. Well, we only have two options, according to Paul here. Either this is it. Here and now is it. This is life. Period. Done. Or... This is only the beginning. There's a whole lot more later. That this is only the very barest beginning of an eternity of existence. So it's one of those two things. Now here is the kind of dirty little secret. Either way, right now can be pretty tough. Because life, what do we say? Life is unfair. It can be hard to win. 
We like to pretend that the American dream is some universal where anybody who really wants to work hard enough can make a really good life for themselves. But for a vast majority of the human race that's alive on the planet right now, that is not true. I think about when I go down to the Dominican and we go out to those bates, and some of those people, and we see those kids, we play with those kids, and many of those kids and those bates, that's going to be their whole life. There is no gateway to middle class. They will grow up, grow old, if they, and old is a lot, oftentimes quite a bit younger, and die living in a little village out in the sugarcane. And compared to some places in the world, they're even better off than others. Even just across the border in Haiti. Because life is hard. And then even here, if you're here in the States, it's hard to be happy. Even if you're winning, even if you accumulate everything. I mean, it's hard to believe that because remember, you look at all these people who make all the money and have all the fame and all the power and none of them show any signs of not being happy, say with uh, multiple marriages or drug use. <laughs> Even the ones who are winning aren't happy. Because it's hard to be happy. And even when you hold on to it. And so either way, now can be tough. Even if this is all there is, sometimes that's kind of sad. But Paul's point here is since there is a later, don't live now like there isn't. Because there is a later, don't live your now as if there isn't a later. Because there is a later. And so it matters. And that's why it says, if there's no later, then hey, eat, drink, and be merry. Get the boast you can, because this is as good as it gets. And I'll tell you, if this is as good as it gets, woe is all of us. Which is his point? And if you're following Christ, you're definitely not pursuing everything now, so you're even more pathetic. Which is why he says, we of all men should be pitied the most. Because we've even foregone trying to get everything out of life now from the world's standards. As you live your weeks, do you think only in the short term? Tomorrow, well today technically is the beginning of the week. But I, we kind of think this is the weekend. So our week starts tomorrow. As you start your week tomorrow, I don't know what your week looks like because maybe you work, maybe you're retired, maybe you stay home. But as you look at your week, as you make your plans, do you always just think about, I just got to get through tomorrow, I just got to get through this week, I just got to get through this month. Or maybe you're, I just need to get to retirement. I just need to, but are all, is all your thinking short term? Because that's, that's normal. That's the default setting of this world. And for many of us, it may be our default setting. And then here's the real trick, and this is talked about in the scripture, and especially in Ecclesiastes. When you're younger, or you're more successful, or you're healthier, it's even more tempting to think short-term. Why? Because it's easier. I remember because, and I checked my diary to make sure I, my memory was accurate, I used to be young. And some of you are going, Ira, you're still pretty young. Well, yeah, 
Generally speaking, yes, but I'm at that, you know, I'm now officially what they call middle age. And I think middle age means that I have both generations on either side of me living with me. So I have mom and kids. So I'm in the middle. Middle age, right? It can't be chronologically middle age because I don't think I'm going to make it to 102. So I'm past the middle there. <laughs> but I've noticed a few things. I'm not a fan of what I've been noticing lately. This one really bugs me. It caught up with me, and I'm still resisting it when I'm doing this number. I used to have amazing eyesight. My parents would be like, how could you read that sign? That's 10 miles away. I'm like, I can see it. Now I'm like, now I need a 10-mile-long arm because I'm like, I can't make up that. What's that? I was looking at, oh, I, my alarm clock is broken, my digital alarm clock. It consistently gains time. I didn't know digital clocks could gain time. Mine right now is, a, is an hour fast. I set it three minutes slow. It's gained 63, 63 minutes. So I'm like, I got a new one. So I go looking for a new one. I'm looking online on Amazon. I'm like, ooh, ooh, I like that one. I'm going to get that one because when I get up in the morning, or when I wake up in the middle of the night, I'm trying to see what those numbers are. That's a good one. So I get it, and I put it in my cart, and I'm reading down through to make sure that it has all the settings I want. And then I saw one of the descriptions, and it said, good for um, people with bad eyesight. And I'm like, well, now I ain't buying you. No way. I was a little offended. Why? Because that's just the natural state, and it bugs people. Because this life has death and loss in it, and we try to avoid that. And as someone, because of my job, does a lot of funerals, because people who don't have a, somebody do a funeral, they oftentimes ask me to do it, and so I end up encountering a lot of people who up until they've needed me to come do the funeral have not really spent time thinking about death because we don't like to. Kent Wiles and I, up at Kent, uh, the Wiles Funeral Home, he and I have chatted about this quite a bit, the fact that over the last two generations, we have been working harder and harder at hiding death from us. I mean, back maybe my great-grandparents' time, you know, when someone died, you put them in the living room, right? You put them in the living room and everybody came over. And so for a couple days, they lived with you. Well, they weren't living with you, but they were there while you lived. And you just walk in the living room, and there they are. And then we moved their body to the funeral home so that we could go home and be away from it. And that's way better. And now half the time, we just put them in a little box and put the little box there, and there's no body at all. Because we, and we've talked about this, that we are getting further and further away from death. Why? Because who likes death? And our whole culture, and, and as a people, we don't want death. We don't like death. We, and we don't like loss because, well, duh. I mean, this isn't rocket science. And this fear of losing and this fear of death is tearing at us as a people, and it pits us against each other. And if you look at the whole globe, why are there wars and why is there factions and why isn't it even in America? Why is there so much division and fighting? Because we're afraid of losing. This week, I was about ready to take my, my, we have a landline, again, old, and I was about ready to rip it off the wall. The thing was ringing every half hour on the half hour. And because we have traditionally belonged to the party of the right, it's people who are on the party of the right, and we don't pick up the phone, 
because I've got this one guy and he's really trying to get hold of me about my car warranty. <laughs> and I'm ducking him. So they leave a message. And the message, and, and after a while, I was like, I was running out and hitting speakerphone twice because you hit it first and it answers it and you hit it again and it hangs up on him. It was a recording anyway, so I'm like, let the bot be offended, I'll be okay. We are trying to stop the, fill in the name of the politician, who is trying to steal your, trying to rob your, trying to take away our. A constant message of how afraid I need to be of what I'm going to lose. Because people are trying to steal things that I need or should have away. And I'm sure if I listened to the party of the other part, it would be a similar message of the people who are trying to take away, trying to take away, because what we're trying to hold on to, we're trying to, because we don't want to experience loss. And so we claw to keep and get, and wars fought over resources and fought over power, and who's going to be in control? But the resurrection frees us from that because it says death and loss will be defeated. Then comes the end where he hands over the kingdom of God and he abolishes all rule, all authority, and power. And he'll put all the enemies under his feet and the last enemy that will be abolished is death. And so I don't have to fear loss. I don't have to fear death because even now, any loss or death I might experience now is not the end. There's nothing that I can lose because Everything here is going to be taken away anyway. The things of this world are passing away. It's all going away. And I don't have to be afraid of that because I know the future. I know what's coming. And what's coming is the end of loss. Oh. And that's why you have people like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel, and the first century Christians who stared death in the face and sang because they're like, hey, what's going to happen? We're not losing anything. We're not afraid of guys like Nebuchadnezzar or Nero, because we're not afraid of losing, because we know what's coming. And so we are freed from the fighting and the grasping and the gripping on and having to hold on and be afraid. And so as a result, we live differently now with no fear of death, no needing to fight, to win, to hold, to get. We don't need to do that. And so my life isn't about the desperate struggle to survive. Because I already know that my life will end in life. Resurrection. Restoration and permanence. The unshakable kingdom, it's called elsewhere in the scripture. And so we live differently now. Because I'm not in a desperate struggle to hold on or get ahead or maintain. And instead, I can proclaim hope and peace. I can proclaim freedom from all that the world wants. Because I say, it's been taken care of for me by the one who loved me and died for me. And I become a sort, and that's why I wanted to sing, his mercy is more. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. Letting go of every single thing, I lay each one down at your feet. Every moment of my wanderings never changes what you see. I've tried to win this war, I confess. My hands are neat. I need your rest. Mighty warrior, king of the fight. No matter what I face, you're by my side. 
No matter what you do, I will trust you because I know the future. The future is taken care of. And so the motives of my life are different. And this is why the resurrection matters now. The resurrection is not live how you want now and don't worry, things will turn out okay later. It's live differently now because you know what comes later. And that was Paul's point. If there's no resurrection, then living the life of the cross is stupid. Because if the best thing that can happen to you is try to ease up as much happiness and as much satisfaction as you can get now, well then good luck. And you're going to need it because this world doesn't, is not kind to that. Ask the successful people who are all fighting addiction. The rich people who still don't have enough money. But if there's resurrection, then I don't need to worry about it. And so how I go to work changes. And how I look at retirement changes. And how I look at turning 51 changes. Because my life is defined by resurrection. So the question is, what are your motives for living? When you get up tomorrow morning, why? Will it be just to try to make a day nice? To just make your life now comfortable? Or will it be based in a much greater hope? And then as you interact with the people who are trapped in living for now, will you be able to offer them something different than the world offers, which is, let me try to help you win better? A lot of people get swindled by that promise. I'll tell you, not being young anymore, even though I know I'm still young, I have found this series to be immensely encouraging because as I realize that what happened at 20 doesn't happen well anymore and if I do try it I usually need recovery time and possibly medical care I'm glad that this isn't it hope that allows me a future what are your motives today let's pray Father, I thank you for your honesty and sharing your word with us, telling us the truth about our life now, but to give us the information we need of what's to come. And Lord, you have demonstrated it because you have already risen from the dead with a body that was very different. Lord, we look forward to the day when this rat race, this need to get ahead, this constant beating our head against trying to make enough money and trying to have enough leisure time and trying to have the good things of life and trying not to let the good life pass us by, as a one song said, only to have then the car breaks down, or the job changes, or a global pandemic messes everything up. That we have a greater hope in you, that our trust can be in you, and that as we go through this next week, we will be surrounded by a planet full of people who are struggling, who are fighting, who are competing, who are turned against one another in the constant struggle to come out ahead, who see their fellow man as a threat. And we will have the opportunity as your people, as your church, to offer them a different kingdom. 
a kingdom that cannot be shaken, treasure that cannot be stolen and cannot rot away, a future where even the natural aging of our bodies will not be a factor, and where the separation that we mourn when death comes between us will be abolished. And may we offer that because we have a planet full of people who desperately want that, but they don't know. They have no knowledge of God. And may we not follow their way of living. May we not let their company corrupt what we know is the real life. May we put aside a life that is informed by their choices and embrace the hope of the resurrection. Lord, be with us as we continue to learn this, as we struggle, and as we gather together to help one another in learning this way of life. It's so different than what we're used to in this world. And thank you for your patience, your grace, and mercy to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.